listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. First Kings chapter 18. Let's go. As I said, we're currently in a series called Desiring the Kingdom, in which we're looking at the failings of human kings and human kingdoms in the books of First and Second Kings. And as we do that, it's stirring up in us a desire for the eternal king and the real kingdom, Jesus and his kingdom that he brings. Currently, right now, we're in my favorite part of this book or these books, and that is the life of the prophet Isaiah. And today we come to maybe one of the greatest, most exciting stories in the Bible. I'm excited about it. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this time we have to open your word as people of God and study it. Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you'd speak to us. Give us soft, shapeable, teachable hearts, Lord, that we would receive everything that your word wants to speak to us, that we put it into practice in our lives. And Lord, that you would transform us as we hear your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys have ever had this thought? You've thought, hey, look, if God is real, I wish you would just give me a sign. I wish God would just give me a sign. Can't he just give me a sign to show me that he's really there, to show me that he really cares about what, what I'm going through, to show me that he really loves me or that he really hears my prayers? Why can't God just give me a sign? Guys, in our story today, we're going to see an occasion in which God did give people a sign. And as we look at that sign that happened back then, we're going to consider whether God actually still sends us signs today as well. So the title of today's message is The God of Fire and Rain. The God of Fire and Rain. And every week, here's what I've been doing. I've been giving you a sentence. And the sentence is going to be our outline for how we study this passage. But what I want you to do with it, I want you to write it down, take a photo of it with your phone, memorize it. And later on today, when you talk to somebody, what'd you do this morning? Oh, I went to church. They, what'd they talk about? Instead of saying, I have no idea, right? You're going to be able to say, here's what we talked about. OK, you ready? Here's our sentence. It's going to be our outline for our study. Ready? Here it is. In the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we see a display of God's judgment and mercy, which points us to the hope we have in Jesus. Okay, we're going to break that sentence down and walk through it for our study today. In the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. See, at this time in Israel's history, the people had started worshiping a pagan deity called Baal. But I'm going to call him Baal because it's easier for me to say, OK? Now, God was very upset about this. He wasn't only upset because his people had turned their backs on him. He was also upset because of the way that Baal was worshipped. See, Baal was worshipped through the shedding of human blood. People would literally cut themselves to please Baal. And worst of all, people would sacrifice their children on altars to Baal, literally killing their little ones in order to please this pagan god. Now, you might wonder, why in the world would anybody ever want to worship a god who makes you cut yourself and kill your children? Well, the reason why people worship Baal is because Baal was thought to be the god who controlled the weather. He was thought to be the god who controlled the weather. And now, if you were a farmer in the Middle East, I'll tell you what, weather 
was more important than gold, right? Rain was more valuable than gold because rain and sunshine in the right amounts, it meant wealth and it meant security. And the people were told that if they made sacrifices to Baal, that would guarantee them rain and good weather for their crops. And so that's what they did. They made sacrifices to Baal. They cut themselves. They sacrificed their children on altars in hopes that it would guarantee them rain. And as God looked at this, it grieved him to the heart. It pained him to see them do this. First of all, because I don't know if I need to tell you this, guys, but Baal doesn't exist. Baal's not a real God. It was the Lord, Yahweh, who sent the rain for their crops. It wasn't Baal. But, but even though Baal was not real and he had no power at all, the worship of Baal was certainly real. And we could say, and it's not a stretch by any means to say, that the worship of Baal was demonically inspired. Just look at it. Baal was a tool of Satan, a tool of the enemy to turn people away from the Lord and cause them to hurt themselves and to kill their children. So God sent Elijah the prophet to give the people of Israel a message. And that message was, as we saw in chapter 17, the message was there would be no more rain in Israel until the people repented and turned away from Baal and turned back to Yahweh. See, here's the thing that happened. Every time it rained, what would happen? The people would say, oh, Baal sent us some rain. I guess our sacrifices are working. It's working. We're cutting ourselves, killing our children. And I guess it's paying off. We're getting rain. Every time it rained, they gave the credit to Baal. And so in order to show them that Baal does not exist, God shut up the sky and he said, it will not rain at all anymore. And this went on for three years. For over three years, it did not rain. Now, of course, this lack of rain completely devastated the, the society there in Israel, a society based on, on farming and agriculture. It was extremely hard for everyone in Israel to have this severe drought. And so after three years of drought, God spoke again to Elijah, and he said, OK, it's enough. The people have suffered enough. Now I'm going to send rain upon the land. I'm going to end this drought. But before the rain could come, before the drought could end, there had to be a confrontation. Because the people needed to know that when the rain came, it wasn't Baal who was sending them the rain. It was Yahweh sending them the rain. They needed to be clear. So we saw last week, because that's how this works, right? Studying through a book of the Bible is like playing golf. You hit the ball. And you pick up wherever it landed, right? So that's what we're doing. We're picking up where we landed last week. And where we landed last week, Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to a contest, a showdown, a contest that will show and prove once and for all whether Yahweh is God or whether Baal is God. And there on the, on the slopes of Mount Carmel, there in northern Israel, tens of thousands of people have gathered at Mount Carmel near the Mediterranean Sea in the north of Israel to watch this showdown take place. Now, why Mount Carmel? Here's why. Simple reason. Mount Carmel is the rainiest place in all of Israel. To this day, we, we go there when we go on tours of Israel. We just went last year. Now, we always go to Mount Carmel, and it is a uh, nature preserve and a national park in Israel. Why? Because it's on this ridge of mountains that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. And as a result, it is the rainiest place in all of Israel. It's always green, always lush. You, know, you tend to think of Israel as desert. Well, not Mount Carmel. It's very green up there, lots of plants, lots of lots of life because they never have droughts there. It's always rainy. Even when you're up there, there's just kind of a mist that sits on the mountain. 
So understand, Mount Carmel is the rainiest place in all of Israel. And that's why Mount Carmel, archaeologists have found altars to pagan gods on there. Why? Because Mount Carmel was ground zero. It was home base for the worship of Baal in Israel. This is where it all centered and took place. So by having this contest on Mount Carmel, Understand, Elijah is giving the prophets of Baal, he's giving them home field advantage. He's going to their turf. He's saying, I'll go to you. I'll give you guys the home field advantage. Now, in verse 23, Elijah, he's, he speaks to this crowd. You, tens of thousands of people gathered to watch this. And he explains, like a referee does at the beginning of a game, right? He explains the rules for the contest. Here's what he says. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. Verse 24, he says, uh, And then you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire is God. And the people answered, It is well spoken. Okay, guys, check this out. In ancient drawings of Baal, right? So like ancient etchings and drawings. Baal is often depicted and drawn with a lightning bolt in his hand. Why? Because he's the god of rain and thunderstorms and weather, right? And so understand, to have this all set up on Mount Carmel, the rainiest place in all of Israel, the place with the most thunderstorms, this is right in Baal's wheelhouse. This is what he does, according to them. He's the God with a lightning bolt in his hand. To send lightning on the rainiest, thunderstormiest place in all of Israel, this should be easy for him. Okay, so understand Elijah's saying, we'll, we'll do your thing. That's what Baal does. Then we'll go there and he can do his thing. Let's see. Verse 25, Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, okay, you guys go first. Verse 26, they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Understand, three, maybe four hours straight, they prayed. They prayed fervently. They were dedicated. They were passionate. They said, O oh, Baal, please send us one of your lightning bolts. They were energetic. They were enthusiastic. They were passionate. When it says that they limped around the altar, that refers to a ritualistic dance that they would do where they actually shift their weight one leg to the other. So what this means is that they were jumping around and shouting and dancing in circles around this altar, trying desperately to get Baal's attention. I wonder how many of you have ever felt like you need to do that kind of thing, right? You need to do something, shout or jump or around in order to get God's attention. I'll tell you what, I've seen some Christian gatherings that looked a whole lot like what the prophets of Baal are doing right here, like a lot of shouting, right? There's like a hanky wiping their face, right? They're sweating through the shirt, right? A lot of sweat, a lot of shouting. But of course here, the problem is this. Baal doesn't actually exist. And so their prayers, no matter how passionate they are, they're just praying out into empty space. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep, and you have to wake him up. Guys, 
This is stone cold. He's brutal. He's letting them have it. He's, I kind of picture like this. I might be totally wrong, right? I imagine him sitting like in a lounge chair with like a, with like a drink in his hand, and he's just sipping it and watching them and heckling them, you know, and giving them a hard time, watching them wear themselves out and get all sweaty and get all tired. And by noon, four hours straight of yelling and shouting. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. And Elijah's just making fun of them, right? He's like, hey, guys, maybe you need to shout louder. Apparently, your God can't hear you. You know what? There is a time and a place when it is appropriate to make fun of things that, that are foolish, to make fun of things that deserve to be ridiculed. You know that God actually does that? at several places in the Bible, especially in the prophetic books. You know, Psalm 2, it says that God looks down from heaven and he laughs and he holds the nations in derision. It means that God looks at the ridiculousness of the crazy things that people do and he laughs. In, in the book of Isaiah, God mocks the ridiculousness of people who worship created things that they make with their own hands. He says, you made that five minutes ago, and now you're worshiping it as your God? That's ridiculous. You know, Jesus mocked things that were ridiculous. Jesus used hyperbole. He said some stone cold things. He used hyperbole to help people see how, the, how ridiculous some of the things that we do actually are. He told the religious people in his day, he said, you know what you guys are like? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look all pretty on the outside, but inside there's nothing but death. That's cold. He said it right to their face. Jesus mocked the legalistic attitudes that try to find loopholes in God's word, right? And he said, you know what that's like? It's like you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. It's ridiculous. He made fun of how we can be so judgmental of other people and yet not even take a look at ourselves in the mirror. He says, it's like you, you point out the, the splinter in somebody else's eye and you don't even care that you have a log hanging out of your own eye, right? He's saying, this is dumb, guys. This is ridiculous. Don't forget, also, this is a contest with Elijah, right? It's a contest. He's just enjoying himself. This is what you do, right? He, he's heckling from the stands. Shout louder. Maybe your God's taking a nap. Maybe he's gone on a journey, right? And he says, maybe he's relieving himself. Now, that, is, that means exactly what you think it means. He's suggesting that the reason their God is not answering is because he's in the bathroom and he's using the toilet. Well, after Elijah heckles them, they get really serious because now they're upset, right? Verse 28, and they cried aloud and they cut themselves as was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. Offering of oblation, that's also called the evening sacrifice. It takes place around 6 p.m. So we're talking like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're talking like 10, maybe 12 hours of just straight, you know, jumping, shouting, cutting. These guys must be exhausted. It says that they raved on till the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. They figured if the blood of the bull that we sacrificed didn't get Baal's attention, then maybe our own blood will. And this was their custom. This is how Baal was worshipped, by the shedding of human blood. They said, surely this will get his attention. So they cut themselves. You can just imagine, right? It's gross that the blood is squirting out of their veins and their arteries onto the altar. And it's just, you know, blood everywhere. It's a huge mess trying to get the attention of their idol in vain. 
But look what it says. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, we're laughing with Elijah at the foolishness of what they're doing. But then you read that phrase, and I know it's hard to feel sorry for these prophets of Baal, but don't you just feel sorry a little bit when you read that phrase? No one answered. No one paid attention. Here they are, desperately trying to cut themselves and get God's attention, and there's no answer. No one cares. You see, look, guys, you know what? You can dedicate yourself with sincerity, with great devotion, with passion. You can devote your life to the idols of this age. You know what the idols of this age are, right? Now, you may not worship Baal or Asherah, but you know this, right? That Baal and Asherah represented things that people absolutely do worship now and today. Baal represented success. He represented security. He represented prosperity. Asherah represented sensual fulfillment and sensual pleasure. And many people today, maybe even some of us, right? We devote our lives to the pursuit of these same things. But here's the thing, guys. You know what? All of these idols of our age, these idols that we worship, these things that we pursue throughout our lives, you know what they're like? It's kind of like cotton candy. You ever get cotton candy, right? It's like, it's, it looks all big. You're like, wow, this is going to be very satisfying. But then you bite into it, and it disappears into thin air. There's nothing there. It just disappears. There's no substance. It vanishes. It dissolves. There's nothing to it. And then in the end, you don't feel satisfied. You just feel gross about yourself, right? You're like, what am I doing with my life, right? You're just covered in sticky stuff, and you feel disgusting. That's what it, following the idols of this world does to you. If you live your life devoted to the pursuing of idols, of, let's say, success, or gaining material things, or the idols of pleasure or acclaim, right? You, what people think of you because of your accomplishments, or the idol of popularity. You know what it's like? It's like chasing after the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It just keeps dragging you along, keeps you chasing and chasing, but you never reach the end of that rainbow. It's an illusion. It's empty. It promises something, but it never and can never and will never deliver on that promise. Maybe you say, well, how do I know what is an idol in my life? How do I recognize it? Let me give you two ways to recognize idols in your life, okay? Two big red flags. Number one, here's, here's the first way to recognize an idol in your life. It's something for which you are willing to cross lines that you thought you'd never cross. It's something for which you find yourself crossing lines that you thought you'd never cross. Maybe you say, oh, I would never lie. Lying's bad. Cheating's bad. I would never cheat. I would never fudge the numbers. But then you find yourself telling half-truths to people. You find yourself fudging the numbers, exaggerating a little bit, cheating a little bit here and there. See, when you find yourself crossing lines that you thought you'd never cross, that's a sign that there's an idol in your life. Idols in our lives, you know what they're like? They're like addictions. And you know what addictions do? They demean you. They strip you, right? They, they drive you to do things that you thought you'd never do. I, I have a friend, and he struggled with addiction. And he told me that the, the moment his eyes were open, he realized that he had a problem with this addiction. It was one day he found himself stealing from his child's piggy bank. And he was like, what? 
has become of me. You know, I never in my wildest dreams would imagine that I would be robbing my own child's piggy bank, but there he was. Guys, you know what? You can be addicted to a lot of things. You can be addicted to success. You can be addicted to other people's opinion of you. You can be addicted to your image. You can be addicted to material things, right? To fulfilling your desires. And you know what? When you're addicted to something, you're not free. An addicted person, that addiction controls you. You are, that is your master, right? You are, you are, you will sacrifice for that thing. You know what an idol is? An idol is a spiritual and mental addiction. It's a spiritual and mental addiction, and it will drive you to do things and cross lines that you thought you'd never cross. The second, a second way to identify idols in your life is something which, if you didn't get it, you'd be tempted to turn your back on God. If I didn't get it, I'd be willing to turn my back on God, or attempted to at least, right? An idol is a thing you look to and you say, if I just had that, then I'd feel like I'm okay. Then I'd feel like I'm content. But guess what, guys? When you get it, it, it doesn't have that effect. An idol is something that you look to to give you the things which only God can give you, whether that's identity, security, meaning, purpose. Here's the thing. Look at these prophets of Baal. Do you think they're happy? Do you think they're feeling good and successful and fulfilled? No, look at them. They're exhausted. They're battered. They're bloody. They're humiliated. And guys, that is exactly what pursuing idols and, and the gods of this world, this is exactly what it does to us as well. If you dedicate your life to pursuing the idols of this world, you will eventually find yourself exhausted, drained, and humiliated. And in the end, this tragic phrase will be written over our lives as well if we live this way, right? There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Well, now it's Elijah's turn. Look at verse 30. Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Apparently, there on Mount Carmel, there used to be an altar at one time to the Lord there on Mount Carmel. And it, at some point, it had been torn down. And an altar to Baal had been erected in its place. And I wonder if there are any of you here today or any of you watching online, and this describes your life. This is where you're at. At one time in your life, your life was characterized by devotion to God. But at some point, the altar to the Lord in your life was replaced with an altar to something else. And maybe today is the day for you, like Elijah did here in this story, you need to repair and restore the altar to the Lord in your life. Look at verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones. 12 guys, not 10. Remember, at this time, Israel's divided. 10 kingdoms in the north, two kingdoms in the south, and two kingdoms. But Elijah says, don't give me 10 stones. Give me 12 stones. Israel is one people before God. And he says, give me 12 stones because of the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel will be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And it says he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. Guys, seah of seed. You, I don't know how much that is either, but I'm assuming it's a lot. OK, he said he put the wood in order, and he cut the bowl into pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. 
Look, Elijah wants it to be abundantly clear that this is not a trick. This is not going to be a sleight of hand. He doesn't have like some lighter fluid and a Bic lighter hanging in his clothes. This is going to be a work of God, and it has to be undeniable. And he wants that for the people. He says, douse it in water. Make it impossible. The Lord doesn't need perfect conditions to do his work. Look at verse 36. At the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. It's so interesting. Elijah doesn't shout. He doesn't jump around. He, he doesn't dance around. He, he doesn't have to cut himself. He just prays this prayer. And this prayer is short, and it's simple. God, reveal yourself to these people. Amen. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Here with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we see two very different approaches to getting God's attention, don't we? Two very different approaches to getting God's attention. And I want to just take a very quick second to consider what this passage teaches us about some keys to effective prayer. Keys to effective prayer. Number one, you have to pray to the God who is actually there. That's the first thing. You have to pray to the God who is actually there. Now, the prophets of the Baal, they were passionate. They were dedicated. The problem is they're praying to a God who doesn't actually exist. He's a figment of their imagination. And you know, this is such a popular thing in our day and age and here where we live. People say, hey, I'm spiritual. Like, I'm down with God and stuff, but I'm not, like, into any organized religion. I just have, you know, my own concept of God. Guys, so did they. They had their own concept of God. But I'm telling you this, in order for your prayers to be effective, you can't just pray to a God of your own imagination. You have to pray to the God who is actually there, the God who really exists, not just a God you made up. Okay, number two, pray with faith. Pray with faith. Elijah's prayer is simple, it's short, and it's confident. Why? Because Elijah has faith. You know, sometimes I hear people say, do you believe in the power of prayer? And I always want to tell them, no, I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God. Elijah doesn't have confidence in his prayer. He has confidence in God. Now think about this. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can see God move mountains. Okay, now think about that. A mustard seed is a tiny, tiny seed, perhaps the smallest seed that was known in Israel at that time. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, what matters most in prayer is not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. Maybe you just have a, the faith that's the size of a mustard seed. You only have enough faith to come to God and trust that maybe he can do something. Guys, it's not the size of your faith. It's the size that you're bringing that issue to the almighty God. It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. He can do incredible things. It's not the power of your prayers. It's the power of him. But you have to have enough faith to at least bring those things to that almighty God in prayer. Okay, last one. Pray according to the will of God. Notice verse 36. Elijah doesn't just, he's not just doing this for fun because he, he thinks it's cool. Elijah is doing this because God told him to do these things. He says, God, I did everything you told me to do. You know what? First John 5.14 says this. 
This is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. How do you know what God's will is? Through the word of God and by the spirit of God. So the key to effective prayer is to pray according to the will of God. Guys, you know that prayer is not like rubbing a lamp with a genie inside. You know what prayer is like? So with God, we don't have a genie who, who just gives us whatever we want when we say the right words. No, with God, we have something better than that. We have a Father who knows all things, who knows us best, and loves us most, and is absolutely dedicated to doing what is best for us, right? His will is for you. So that's so much better than a genie who gives you what you think you need. No, it's a Father who gives you what he knows is best. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, your will. Okay, let's continue this sentence. In the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we see a display of God's judgment and mercy. In verse 40, after the fire comes from heaven, we read that Elijah took the prophets of Baal down to the brook Kishon, and he executed them there. Apparently, these thousands of people who were gathered around, when they saw God respond in fire, they turned on the prophets of Baal, and they grabbed them, and they helped Elijah do this deed of executing them at the brook Kishon. Now, maybe you say, hey, isn't this a bit harsh, right? Like, isn't this a bit much capital punishment for these 450 prophets of Baal? Guys, I want you to remember, these prophets had blood on their hands. These prophets had slaughtered children and babies for years. These prophets had killed the followers of Yahweh. These prophets had encouraged people to turn away from the true God and to cut themselves and follow a fake God. And they profited from this financially. And when they were given the chance to repent, they refused. This judgment, you know what it was? This was the punishment for crimes against humanity. That's what they had committed. And that's what this is. But see, God didn't only send judgment that day. You know what else God sent? He sent mercy. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, get up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of rushing of rain. Even before the rain came, Elijah knew that God was going to send it. And Elijah told Ahab, it's about to rain, so go get yourself ready. We've got to get off this mountain before the thunderstorm comes. So Ahab, he goes and he gets ready. Elijah, he goes back up on top of Mount Carmel. He puts his head between his knees, which is a posture of prayer, and he prays for God to send rain and end the drought. In verse 43, he asks his servant, do you see anything? And the servant's like, no, I don't see anything. But in verse 44, we read that a little cloud the size of a man's hand appeared on the horizon. God was sending rain. In verse 45, the sky turned black with clouds and wind and rain. Ahab, he rides away in his chariot to a place called Jezreel. It's basically, like in, in our terminology, it's down valley, right? He's heading down valley from Mount Carmel. And verse 46, Elijah ran ahead of Ahab and waited for him there at the entrance to Jezreel. Maybe you're thinking, why in the world is he doing that? Doesn't Ahab hate his guts? Why is he going to Jezreel to meet Ahab? This seems weird. Here's why, guys. Listen, Elijah assumes that just like everybody else on the mountain who saw the fire from heaven, the sign from God, and they, they, were, they repented and they turned their hearts to the Lord, he figures, well, probably Ahab's done the same thing. Ahab has also turned his heart to the Lord. And now 
Ahab and me, we're going to be bros, right? Like he's going to, we're going to be friends because he's going to be happy. You're a prophet of the Lord. I love the Lord. I, I've repented. I'm following the Lord. But that's not what's going to happen, guys. They're not going to be bros. And we're going to see that in our study next time in chapter 19. So you got to come back, right? Got to come back. All right. So even though the people were persuaded that day that Baal was false, and Yahweh was true. Understand their momentary persuasion that came from that sign, it did not translate into lasting devotion to God. Okay, let's finish this up by looking at the end of our sentence. In the showdown between the Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we see a display of God's judgment and mercy, which points us to the hope we have in Jesus. Guys, you know, throughout the Bible, fire is used as a symbol of judgment, God's judgment. Fire is a symbol of God's judgment. Rain, on the other hand, is a symbol of God's mercy and God's grace throughout the Bible. Now on Mount Carmel, think about this. Fire from heaven came down and completely consumed the sacrifice. And as a result, the people received mercy. Are you picking up what it's putting down? Okay, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And on the cross, the fire of God's judgment that we deserved came upon Jesus, and he was totally consumed. There on Mount Carmel, with all the people gathered, you know what? God could have sent the fire of judgment upon the people. They certainly would have deserved it, right? The people had turned away from him. The people had ignored his calls to repentance and give their hearts back to him. The people deserved God's judgment, but instead of sending the fire of judgment upon the people, God sent the fire of judgment upon the sacrifice. Guys, Jesus is our sacrifice. He bore the flames of judgment on our behalf so we could receive mercy and grace showering down upon us. I began this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever wished that God would give you a sign? You know, we put that up on our Instagram this week, on our Instagram story, and we had several people respond, yes, I have always wanted God to give me a sign. Well, good news, guys. God has given you a sign. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign, the sign to end all signs. Check out what it says in Matthew chapter 12. It says that some scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus one day, and they said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Listen, maybe you read that and you say, man, why does Jesus say that they're adulterous and evil for wanting a sign. If I want a sign, does that mean that Jesus thinks I'm adulterous and evil? Well, understand one piece of context here, and that's this. When these guys said this to Jesus, what do you think he'd been doing for two years at this point? Healing people, signs, miracles, healing people, feeding crowds of people, doing signs, in other words, that he was the Messiah. And by these guys coming up to him, you know what they're saying? They're saying, you know, Jesus, all that other stuff you did, it didn't really impress us. It didn't persuade us. When are you going to do something really cool, Jesus? Something that will really convince us that you are the Messiah. 
It's a slap in the face, guys. It's an insult. They're saying, Jesus, all that other stuff you did didn't count. Jump through a hoop for us, you know? Give us a, give us a real show. Show us something that will really impress us. Understand, this is, this is an insult. And so Jesus responds the way he does. There's something wrong with you guys' hearts, is what he's saying. And then he says this. He says, you know what? I'll give you one sign and only one sign. If nothing else impressed you, then remember this. Write it down. Take note of it. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die one day, and then three days later, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to live again. So you guys take note of that and pay attention when it happens. And you know what? It happened exactly like he said it would. Guys, God has sent you a sign. He has sent you the ultimate sign in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want a sign that God is really there, that God really cares about you, that God really loves you, you don't need to look any further than Jesus. You know what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8? He said, here is the sign that God really loves you. Here's the sign. By this, God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the sign you've been waiting for. Jesus came to us. He was God come to us, and he took the fire of heaven's judgment in our place so that we could receive mercy and grace raining down on us from heaven above. What a gift. And as you think about that gift today, as we move into a time of communion, I want you to ask yourself this question. Maybe write it down. Maybe think about it, okay? Here's the question. What are you going to do in response to what Jesus did for you? What are you going to do in response to what Jesus did for you? There's a lot of answers. There's a lot of right answers. Are you going to trust in him? Are you going to worship him? Are you going to serve him? How will you respond to what Jesus has done for you? I want you to take that question and think about it as we take communion. And think about it as you walk out of this building today and go about the rest of your day. And think about it throughout this coming week. How will you respond to what Jesus did for you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you, Jesus, took the fire of judgment in our place so we could have grace and mercy rain down upon us. Lord, thank you for your goodness, and we praise you during this time. Lord, we want to respond appropriately to this gift that you have given us. It's so incredible. So as we hold this bread, your body broken for us in our hands right now, we remember that you were nailed to a cross, Jesus, and our sins were nailed to the cross along with you. So we rejoice. We're so thankful that in you, because of what you did on the cross, we can be forgiven. We can have a fresh start and a new life. We can have eternal life. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.